All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. All right, you guys, on the line, I've got Richard Booth. He's our Glenn Wilburn Fellow at the Libertarian Institute and keeper of our great archive on the Oklahoma City bombing at libertarianinstitute.org slash OKC, the world's greatest collection of primary sources documents from all different government agencies, as well as all of the very best articles and none of the goofy stuff on the Oklahoma City bombing. Welcome to the show. How you doing, Richard? Pretty good. How are you, Scott? I'm doing great, man. And I'm having a hell of a day today, starting this morning. I just couldn't believe it. Jesse Trinidou sent in the email, brand new out in CNN.com, of all places, an article called, Why Did This Cop turn up dead a heroic police officer rescued at least three people after the 1995 oklahoma city bombing a year later he was found shot in the head by thomas lake at cnn i'm working on getting this guy on the show but it hasn't worked yet because of cnn bureaucracy so hopefully we'll have that interview for everybody here soon but i figure i'll go ahead and go over this with you now i don't know where to start. I'm fascinated, of course, by CNN um, making the decision to publish this. I don't want to speculate on what's behind that. It could just be that it's solid journalism and his editor had some courage and went for it. It could be something else, but I have no real cause to speculate about that. But I can celebrate the fact that it's being published, this piece is being published at such a high-profile uh, website. And I guess I have to presume they've been talking about it on TV today, at least did one segment on it or something, right? If it's CNN, do you know? You know, I don't know if they had any coverage on the network. But anyway, you know, I'm convinced it's all social psychology, so I put out a tweet. I should have tagged mm -hmm. a bunch of them in it. I couldn't think of who to tag in the thing, but, you know, attention all mainstream newspaper or, you know, mainstream media journalists. You can talk about this now and without getting, you know, conspiracy theory cooties on you or anything, because... Look at this solid piece by CNN. I couldn't find a flaw in the thing. Ah, they cited Ben Parton. I might have left that out. But uh, what an important piece. So I'm going to be quiet now. And please tell us, what was your impression of that story? And what do you know about what's behind it, if anything? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought the piece was actually really solid. You could tell from reading it that uh, he had interviewed several people. You know, he'd spoken to the, the people who were involved in this. Um, he talked to... Uh, Terry's ex-wife talked to his his sister, and so he definitely it's more than just a surface level thing. The guy actually said, you know, this is from my investigation, so he must have been working on it for some time mm -hmm. uh, to go to that level. And of course, he he interviewed Bob Ricks too, who, you know, just awful. Um, but my impression was, I thought it was really good. It was good journalism, and I think it's brave. And it makes me wonder how did he get it past his editor, but. You know, however that may be, whatever it is, I'm not going to question it because it's it's great to get more attention on this subject. Yeah, absolutely right. All right. So for the new people, I mean, first of all, 
you know, before you even tell us about Terry Yakey, you just tell us, you know, basic overview. There are people who have no idea that there's another story at all behind the Oklahoma bombing and what it might have to do with this dead cop. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, yeah, Terry Yakey was one of the first well, the first person to arrive at the crime scene right after the bombing he was nearby a police officer in oklahoma city and he responded you know and immediately went to work going through the rubble saving people he saved a you know number of people that day and he actually injured his back uh, while doing so uh, but yeah he's pulling just pulling people out of the, the rubble and doing everything he could just to help out and i guess he was really um sort of traumatized and very upset by things that he saw that day. And what we know about that comes from his ex-wife, Tanya Yeke, because he had talked, he was talking to her about it. And one of the quotes, you know, is that he said, um, they're lying. It's not what they say it is or what happened, something along those lines that what happened isn't what they're saying happened. So evidently he saw something that upset him greatly. And part of that involves, uh, we, researchers believe that he may have had access to surveillance tape as he actually uh, he had a vcr himself which folks out there back when you use vhs tapes you had to use a vcr to play them and to make a copy of a vhs tape you actually had to have two vcrs and while terry had a vcr he borrowed his ex-wife Tanya Yakey's VCR so that he could be in a position to have two of them, which of course, you know, makes one think that he probably was going to try to dub a tape. Um, and that's what a lot of us believe is that he may have been referring to what he saw on the surveillance tape, though it might've been what, what upset him so much. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, you know, I've known about this story for a long time. I know that I talked about Terry Yakey back on free radio, Austin in 1998 and 1999. And, you know, I don't know. I guess you probably would know better than me whether we talk about him in my archives at all. I don't. He's not been the biggest piece of this puzzle to me in my coverage of it in this century. I don't guess, but um, we, yeah. If someone searches the Libertarian Institute for Yankee, actually, a really good article, the one I refer people to the most, comes up, and that's an article by David Hoffman. Uh, it was published in I want to say Washington Weekly, and it has the basic details of the Yankee story. And Hoffman um, is the same guy that wrote The Politics of Terror, right? Yep, same oh. guy. Okay. Yep. Um, and so, uh, but now, well, can you tell us, because, you know, I remember that, you know, the story was that he was suspicious about something about Oklahoma, that the crime scene, you know, was impossible. He was like, you know, uh, of course, all these um, self-inflicted knife wounds, but then he was on the other side of a chain link fence and mm-hmm. and shot himself, but there's no gun and all these things. I remember all of that. Um, but the story's really developed much further than I had realized here. A part of it from the work of Craig Roberts, who I know of, but I never really um, paid too close of attention to him. You know, when I was mostly interested in the story was before I had the internet. I'm old, mm-hmm. see. Um <laughs> But uh, anyway, so this guy, you know, writing for CNN, he's essentially piggybacking on the work of Craig Roberts in a way. And that's just not Paul Craig Roberts, the nut. Different guy. Different guy altogether. Um, And uh, anyway, so they really have developed this story further. Like, it's not just, oh, I heard somewhere that this guy 
had something on the Oklahoma bombing or whatever. Like, this guy's really developed the story about everyone around Terry Yakey knew that he had a problem with what happened at that bombing, that apparently he had his own investigation going on. And then, you know, he even talks to this lady, I guess, who had been kind of a big champion of the first responders and that kind of thing, who was like the last guy to see him, the last lady to last person to see him alive. That's and, right. And he went, yeah, I'm going to go meet with these feds and show them what I got. <laughs> what? I mean, this is really an incredible story, man. This is something else. I should have read it twice. You know, it really is. And you're right. This person that he was talking to, Ramona, was kind of a confidant for Terry. And uh, when you read it and you read that article or read the, the Hoffman piece, um, the picture that emerges, it almost looks like these feds that he was going to meet, it seems like they lured him, you know, because he goes to, to meet them and then he's dead. And what we find, and you'll see this in the coverage, um, is not only was Terry's apartment broken into and tossed, obviously someone looking for something, same thing happened to Tanya's apartment, to Ramona's, and then his storage uh, unit in Kingfisher was emptied out. And so we believe that the, the, the folks who, who killed him uh, did so because uh, he had he may have had the surveillance tape or a copy of it, and they were desperately trying to retrieve that. Mm -hmm. And as you know, if Terry had taken that to the media, they of course would have run with it. And given his position, um, really he was distraught and upset uh, about something. And so that, that's what we think it is. And you can see that in both the new CNN piece and in Hoffman's piece, the level of um, harassment that went on with the family um, and like I mentioned, the break-ins, you could see all that. And really, it is it is a huge story. People should look at it. It's going to open some eyes, I think. Yeah. I mean, I can't, I still can't believe that they published an article that's this good, that nobody mm -hmm. took a hatchet and cut these great paragraphs out or anything. I mean, this stuff is where they talk about how, what do you mean there was no autopsy for a cop who died violently? And where there's no no direct witnesses or, you know, this right, kind no of thing, autopsy. no investigation. And then also the Oklahoma City Police Department taking immediate control of the investigation. Now, it's interesting, you know, because this murder happened uh, in El Reno, uh, which is a different county, different city than Oklahoma City. And it's a, they were asked, you know, uh, for in the CNN piece. Um, he, the, the writer reached out and asked, you know, why, why did you guys take control of this investigation? And they actually said, oh, oh, we don't know. You know, it's just amazing. Yeah. Well, and, and seriously, who had the juice to make the Oklahoma police department cover up the murder of one of their own guys? Mm -hmm. You know, that's a pretty tough one. Um, mm -hmm. not impossible, just tough. That's all I'm saying there. Um, now, so what about the gun? Did I have it right that we knew for a fact that there was no gun? The way it says here is just that they don't talk about in the reports, they don't mention whether a gun was found or not, or whether it was fingerprinted or any other thing. It's just sort of, well, he was shot. Right. Credit to, to Craig Roberts for that, because he actually began writing letters to the, he's a former police officer, Tulsa P PD. Mm -hmm. And so he knew 
um, who the police authorities were and who to go to and that sort of thing. And so he was writing them letters about this because he wanted to know what firearm was recovered at the crime scene. Was it, you know, whose firearm was it? Because we still don't know that. And what we know from the reporting is that initially uh, when law enforcement showed up and at the, the scene of the crime where they've got his body uh, now in a suicide, you're typically going to find the firearm right away right there by the body. And that wasn't the case with Terry Yiki. And so initially there was, you know, they didn't uh, find any sort of firearm. And it was only after um, the, the feds had began, from what I read, it said that the, after the FBI got involved, um, and the Oklahoma City Police Department have secured the crime scene. Now, all of a sudden, they find a firearm, but it's still not been sufficiently explained what type of weapon, whose weapon it was. That's still very much, I think, a central question that deserves to be answered, even if the position is, oh, this was just a suicide. Well, if that's the case, then they should have no issues answering such a simple question. Mm-hmm. All right, now, so... There were, um, you know, the the CNN story did bring up that there was some trouble in the guy's personal life, that they have court records that say that his wife had divorced him and put a protective order against him. And so he had a problem with his temper and he was having these problems and this kind of thing. I wonder what you know about that. And, you know, he also does report in here, though, that that's all disputed and that, um, well, not that there was a protective order, but it says here that they were getting remarried here and this kind of thing. So the the story that he was having a real bad time right then was not really true. But I just wonder whether you've really looked at any of that at all. I have just kind of cursory. But what I do know about it, though, is that uh, his ex-wife had filed a like a protective order against him about two years before all of this happened before he, you know, was murdered. And so they, they had had, you know, people in relationships will go through strife and trouble and you know, not to minimize anything. But what I think probably happened here is, is, uh, they were going through, uh, you know, having some problems and she did, you know, go and take out this protective order, but whatever problems they had, they resolved that and they had reconciled and they actually were very much on friendly terms with one another. And actually, like you said, talking about, you know, getting married again. And so they were really kind of back together. And what's interesting there is that after he was murdered, the police were very much pressuring Tanya uh, to, to basically, they wanted her to say, that, that she wanted to have the protective order reinstated and that she, you know, she was asking them to do that right before, you know, he, he died to really what they wanted to look like to, was to create a narrative of mm-hmm. an unstable individual. And she refused to go along with that to her credit. Right. Yeah. That's really the narrative that you get out of there is they very much wanted for that to be the story that this guy was having some problems. But meanwhile, all the people who saw him, in you know the time leading up to his death, none of them believed that this guy was suffering some major depression. Right, none of them did. And in fact, Terry had spent a considerable amount of time with his wife and children since the the issues that they had in the the year and a half to two years before, um, going out on family outings, all of them together. And everybody who knew Terry and knew the family, none of them believe it. They they straight up say that no, absolutely not. You know, if he was upset about anything 
it wasn't personal matters. It was professional. He was upset about something that related to the folks he was working with and specifically something that he saw and he knew to be a fact. And I've thought about that and thought about it. And the only thing that I can think of is, you know, it goes again back to, I think he probably made a copy of the surveillance video. And of course, I'm just speculating here, but if a person had that, I think there's some things would be very clear to them um, rather quickly. And uh, that also would be the kind of evidence given what we've seen to cover that evidence up and deny that it exists. Uh, it would show the premium the feds would put on that kind of material and, and shows how far they would go to keep a, a lid on it. Mm-hmm. All right. So there's too many things and I keep remembering them and forgetting them again. So let me go through real quick. We got this eight page report that he had given and turned in uh, to the Oklahoma Police Department that had disappeared from the records that no one could find. But then this lady, the last person to see him alive, she mm-hmm. said that she had a copy of it, too. But I guess it's implied that it was stolen when her house was ransacked. But that's right. But it, yeah. it's, you know, severe independent confirmation of the existence of this eight page uh, memo, which he was said to have been told, rewrite it, make it a page long and take out all the good stuff, which is one of the things that he was said to be upset about. Yes. Um, and then he was upset about his superiors wanting then, him to alter a report. You know, he right. didn't like that at all. All right, and then and then two more things, and, and I'll be quiet. You can address all three of these things, but uh, then we have um, a medical examiner's report. This is how we know that he did have these cuts all over his body, and then but there are witness statements. Help clarify for me why it is that we're led to believe that there was much more than just cuts and a gunshot, but that he had been tortured and had been bound and these kinds of things. And then also, if you could please talk about this, and this is something that I didn't know either. If I knew it, I forgot, and I'm sorry, but that he had a friend, Steve Vassar, who was also a former cop, which is, you know, pretty good for the same thing with Craig Roberts that CNN can go, well, I don't know, he's a former cop, and talk to the guy, and that he had done kind of his own investigation and come to his own conclusions about what had happened to Terry, too. So I was wondering if you could talk about that. Yes. So in terms of uh, the wounds and and what that evidence tells us is um, you're correct that, yes, of course, he had the he had these cuts, you know, to his wrists and to his neck. But also he had very much like Kenneth Trinidou in this other case, he had ligature marks on him to show that basically he had probably flex cuffs or zip ties uh, on him and the, leaves those marks, you know, on the body. And that's very, that was very evident in this case uh, to the medical examiner. And that's why the family said they tortured him and killed him because they're seeing, you know, evidence here that he was restrained. Right? Oh, and that's, it's important to note, right, that uh, I guess, I don't know if they attempted to get away with cremation here or something, but in this case, his family got to see his body and essentially take notes on the damage that's right. that they saw. That's right. Right. They, they, uh, the family knew as well from the medical examiner's report who he would, you know, in that report, although it doesn't say suicide, you're talking about a guy who has two razor cuts to his neck. He's got razor cuts on both of his wrists. He has ligature marks on his body and they found actually, dirt and grass embedded 
in some of these wounds, which led, which I think would lead any reasonable person to conclude that the body was dragged, you know, across the ground. And that's just how this material gets embedded right. in the wounds. So the picture that emerges is very much similar to the Kenneth Trinity case. And you have an individual who clearly was murdered, uh, who was beaten and who was restrained. And uh, in this case, it looks like they were looking for something as well because they, um, and you can see this and, uh, Craig Roberts talks about it a bit in this, he's got a book and, um, I definitely do not endorse a lot of the stuff in that book, some of those theories, but it is particularly good on Terry Yeeke and what he did. And in that book, he talks about how Yeeke's car was just covered in blood and that uh, evidently the police had tore the car apart and were looking to see if he had maybe hidden something in his vehicle. So they were clearly looking for something. Mm. And then we also have the statement by the lady that he had told her, you know, I guess that he was trying to decide whether or not to go meet with these cops. He was worried about whether he should or not, but he decided he was going to go, but he was going to leave his gun at home. That way yes. they wouldn't be able to use his own gun against him. That's Showed very good thinking, I think, on his part, you know, at least in terms of knowing that something is off. If you're going to think that through, he should have met them at a Denny's or something right in front of everybody. I don't know. Yeah. That's yeah. A tough it's one, just, man. he clearly he had some gut some instinct that, that this isn't right, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. What a story. Oh, and they got the giant picture of the dead baby in the firefighters arms again like thanks a lot guys we've seen that before cnn um mm -hmm. what a horror show now, people can find some of his uh, written communications with ramona this is this person who is kind of a confidant to terry where he told her a lot about the troubles he was having at work with his superiors um you can find some of the we got uh, that in the archives yeah well there are excerpts uh from the letters he wrote to ramona in the david hoffman piece uh -huh. and that's in the archive and also if you search yiki there is a very good article written i want to say around 2009 or 2010 i believe from wendy painting one of her earlier uh pieces and so that people can find that and uh yeah you I, I urge people just go back and read the original Hoffman article it lays it all out and that was April 21st of 1997 okay i guess that must have been either what i read or i knew secondhand about it from listening to him talk about it on the wigglesworth show or something mm -hmm. um, also that uh, Hoffman article is, is very strong when it talks about the harassment that the family faced <clears throat> from the police, which you, you don't see that as much in the CNN piece, although the CNN piece I thought was very good considering, you know, that they even went there. And the fact is, when they not only did they go there, but they were largely accurate. Mm -hmm. You know, there was no agenda being pushed. It was good journalism. And it was just shocking to see that. And I think it's fantastic. Hey, guys, check out my new sponsor. It's Peacehawk Coffee at peacehawk.coffee. First of all, business. You have to drink coffee in the morning, and you want it to taste good. Well, Peacehawk Coffee is the best from around the world. But then, just as important, 
Peace Talk Coffee donates at least a dollar of every pound sold to worthy foreign aid organizations like Yemen Relief and Reconstruction Foundation. When you buy Peace Talk Coffee, you're not only buying great coffee, you have a chance to support the economies of countries struggling against the effects of war and support private aid foundations doing life-saving work abroad. Sign up for their email list and get yourself some great coffee at peacehawk.coffee. Hey, y'all, Scott Horton here for the Libertarian Institute at libertarianinstitute.org. I'm the director. Then we've got Sheldon Richmond, Kyle Anzalone, Keith Knight, Lori Calhoun, Jim Bovard, Connor Freeman, Will Porter, Patrick McFarlane, and Tommy Salmons on our staff, writing and podcasting. And we've also got a ton of other great writers, too, like Walter Block, Richard Booth, Boss Spleet, Kim Robinson, and William Van Wagenen. We've published eight books so far, including my latest, Hotter Than the Sun, Time to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, and Keith Knight's new Voluntarist Handbook. And we've got quite a few more great ones coming soon. Check out libertarianinstitute.org books. It's a whole new era. We libertarians don't have the power, but we do have enough influence to try to lead the left and the right to make things right. Join us at libertarianinstitute.org. You know, um, it's interesting that part of the story here is that apparently what he had said was he thought that the building was blown out from the inside rather than the other way around. Is that... Uh, um where do you see that? Like in the articles? Yes, what does it say um, specifically about that? Yeah, let me see here. I'm scanning through. So they talk about Benton Parton. We can get back to that in a second. But here he says, uh, for his part, Terry Yakey believed that... Um, Some government employees had lied about their whereabouts yeah, during it's the later, bombing. Yeah, it's in that same uh, paragraph. He had mm-hmm. questions about the source of the explosion. According to his sister, Lash on oh, Hargrove. There we go. You know how they said the truck bomb blew in? He saw evidence of blowing out. And so this is someone who presumably, she's just going off of what he told her. She's not been reading Prison Planet this whole time and fleshing out the rest of the story herself or something. You know, presumably she's, this is all she knows about it, is what he told her. That he thought maybe it had blown from the inside out. So, you know, I'll go ahead and say, because we're getting into this, that I can make a case for this. I used to make a case for this, and I actually have. I found the one tape of my first radio show that survives is me uh, talking about Oklahoma, and I do a whole presentation on Ray Brown and the seismologists and Ben Parton and column B3 and all the reasons to believe that there were demolition charges inside the building, as Benton Parton said. He was the former chief of Air Force Weapons Development. Um, But... I'll say two things about that, which is one, I saw him give a speech about the satanic new world order plot at a, <laughs> uh, you know, like a gun show, uh, you know, right wing patriot militia type uh, thingamajig in Denver one time. And I thought, ah, this guy's a little crankier than I thought, you know, um, thought really he was a munitions expert and he was going to give a speech about Oklahoma City. And now we're talking about the devil and stuff. I don't know. And then um, J.D. Cash, who's still by far the single greatest hero journalist on this story and always will be no offense, Richard, because you're obviously second place here, but, but, um, JD cash told me, you know, on a phone, I don't think this is in our interview. It could be in our interviews, but I know for a fact, he told me in private conversation as well, that he thought Benton Parton was a total nut. And that when he told Parton, the crater wasn't there, the crater was here. He said, Oh, I don't care. He just moved it, but he didn't change his math. And was that's right. You know, and he had, I always thought it was weird the way he just 
knew and determined that it was just a fact that it had to have been a sophisticated fuel air explosive. Um, and that's what explained the double blast on the seismograph and, and never even addressed, well, it could have just been another bomb on the seismograph or something like that. And so now we're not even talking about ANFO at all or, or a homemade bomb by some Nazis at all. But now it's, you know, this sophisticated Air Force munition. And you can tell that he's just ad libbing this stuff at right. that point. So, you know, I don't take Parton seriously. I, I definitely take JD seriously when he tells me not to take Parton seriously. So um, here's where CNN's even more of a conspiracy nut than me. How do you like that on that part of the story? Um, <laughs> That's but, right. You know. But. If Terry Yankee thought that there was a concern, then I shouldn't be so prejudiced and closed-minded. You know, the 9-11 truthers poisoned all conspiracy theorizing for me because they're so wrong about 9,000 claims they make that it just makes all good conspiracy theorizing seem retarded. And in fact, why do they assume there are bombs in all the towers? Because everybody knows there's bombs in Oklahoma City. They must have done it again. And that was the assumption, like, from day one without stopping to wait and see. So then that made me more like, well, you know, more skeptical of whereas before maybe I I wanted to believe there were bombs in the building because that helps prove the case even more because who could have put bombs in the building or something like that? You know what I mean? But so now I don't know what to think, and I wonder what you think. Yeah, I think we can take Benton Parton and his analysis, and we can just toss it to the side, okay? Now, that doesn't mean, though— that we need to throw out analysis of what we're seeing here. And so, for example, I think it's entirely possible for someone to look at the asymmetrical blast damage pattern that they're seeing uh, in the Oklahoma City bombing and have questions about that. And I think that we probably should be consulting with other experts, maybe who are a little bit more credible than Benton Parton. And I've always been open to that, not being an expert on explosives. I'm not going to completely write it off. Now, of course, I'm, I'm, when I hear stuff about, oh, it was a super bomb and all this kind of nonsense, like Ted Gunderson proposed, I don't even, you know, I don't even pay any attention to that. No, but in all seriousness, I think it's something that should and can be looked at. And when you have, for example, uh, here where uh, Terry Yeeke's sister, uh, LaShawn Hargrove, saying that he told her, you know how they said the truck bomb blew in? He saw evidence of blowing out. Now, I think that, I mean, again, this is kind of speculating, but it sounds a lot to me like she might be talking about Terry seeing the video footage. Because if that is what happened, that would be readily apparent on the surveillance video. You know, and so I think it's something we should pay attention to, and we don't have to rely on Benton Parton. You know, yeah, we don't we don't have to rely on him. You know, that's true. Well, and look, um, we have VZ Lawton, and I forget the guy's name now. But if people go back and listen to my interview of VZ Lawton, then um, they'll be able to hear. He does say the name of the guy in the news clip who tells the same story as VZ that the mm -hmm. building was shaking first, and um, and then the glass blew in second, like 10 seconds later. And in fact, um, VZ said that a plaque had fallen off the wall and hit him in the head. And so he had fallen on the ground and then was protected by the flying glass coming in because he'd fallen behind a desk. And then his buddy, who we have the news clip. I might play the clip here. 
um, as long as I'm babbling about it so that I'm making sense. Um, and you know, we have a, a document in the archive that actually is directly related to what we're talking about here now. Uh, Jesse Trinidou got a whole batch of documents that came from the Oklahoma City Police Department in one of his FOIA requests. And I was going through these one day, and you see there plain as day on one of these articles that there was an eyewitness who actually he was looking at the Murrah building at the time that the bombing happened. And this this guy reported that he saw a massive fireball coming out from like the fifth or the sixth floor. He saw some type of, you know, not the sort of thing that you would expect to see if you've got a truck bomb and a blast pressure wave outside the building. And I always thought that was really interesting and wish that I knew, you know, the name of that witness and uh, more like him because it, it certainly raised my eyebrow. All right. So listen, I have a clip here. Let me play. Uh, and I'm sorry, I don't remember the guy's name, but uh, VZ, if you go back and listen to my interviews of VZ Lawton, he he says the name of this guy. My floor was okay, and the ceiling had come down, but there was still concrete above, so it was just a corner of the office that was left that we were in. Everybody else that we worked with is gone. Are you okay? Just the corner of your office was okay, and the rest of the floor was completely... Uh, it's flattened. We go over the edge and look, and you can see the sky, and as far down as you can look, and just a hole. And which floor were you on? Fifth. On fifth? Fifth floor. Just the one corner of the fifth floor wasn't completely flattened. I don't know what the west end of the building looks like. How did, how, did everybody just crawled out of the desk after? It, it was like slow motion. We crawled under before the glass started coming and everything. It just, it, it just seemed, to, seemed to roll in on us. I thought it was an earthquake when it started. It was just a, a kind of a shake and then it, everything started going like this and I, I dove under the desk and then all the glass came in and the ceilings came down and I probably got cut worse if I hadn't been under the desk. I just got little scrapes and scratches. I was really lucky. Really lucky. Yeah. All right, so there you go. Anyway, there's the chronology is, uh, you know, the earthquake was going on long enough for him to hide under his desk before the windows shattered. That's so, right. And a, a blast pressure wave is just instantly, it's immediate. You're not going to have multiple seconds where it feels like an earthquake. That speaks to something different, you know, and I think that that's something that is worth looking at. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, um, yeah, what the hell, you know? I'm willing to uh, return to open-mindedness about that. I mean, J.D. said that, what? It, well, actually, before I get to that, the day of the Oklahoma bombing, you know, I was a senior in high school, and what I had heard was they bombed Oklahoma City and Salt Lake City and some other place. It was two or three of them across the country was the way I had heard the story at first. So, mm -hmm. wow, man, what's going on? And I went mm -hmm. to half day, so like at noon or so. I was off of school and went to my buddy's house up the street and his friend was over there, a guy that I knew pretty well. His name was Richard and he had been force recon in Vietnam, in the Marine Corps and mm -hmm. had, you know, according to him, taught bomb making school, you know, and knew exactly what he was talking about. And when I came in the door, he's pointing at the TV saying there was a bomb here and here and here and here. And that was my red pill on Oklahoma City. It was the first time, the first moment I even saw that building. I mm -hmm. had a demolitions expert telling me this is where the charges were set. 
And they were saying, man, you should see it. They've been talking about the building was bombed from the inside out all morning long, and they just now switched it. And they're not even saying they were wrong before. They're just going, oh, the bomb was outside, which there clearly is a crater out front, and there clearly was a truck bomb. But That's right, um, yeah. And then, by the way, as long as I'm rambling here, they said, you know, from, I guess ATF was the original source for this. Maybe not. But anyway, they it was the FBI or the ATF that said the original estimate was it was a 1,200-pound car bomb outside. And then later that day, they doubled it and said it was a 2,400-pound car bomb. And, and then later, they just of course, kept they doubling. said it was a truck bomb. And then they just doubled it again, exactly yeah. double again to 4,800 pounds. And that stayed the official story for 20 years. Or Well, no, that stayed the official story until McVeigh did that official story book with the local newspaper reporters, and then he upped it to 7,000 pounds. Mm -hmm. um, but the 4,800 stuck. And you could tell they're just making it up That's from right. the very first day. That's right. This story yeah. pisses me off still. I remember uh, uh, Frederick Whitehurst, you know, I interviewed him, and he talked about how they just lied and said that they found all these uh, particles of ammonium nitrate in the plywood inside the Ryder truck, that and that was just the deal. This is our story, and we're sticking to it. And very well may have been an info bomb, but they just lied, called it science. If you ever That's heard right. of such a thing. That was his key complaint with the crime lab, is that this guy, David Williams, what he would do is he would look and see, okay, uh, what, what did McVeigh and Nichols buy? Oh, okay, they bought Anfo. Okay, so it was an Anfo bomb, and he's, he's just kind of working backwards from some of the material they have when really in a, you know, a crime lab, what you should be doing is doing scientific analysis of the material, you know, rather than just uh, speculating and, and saying, oh, this is what it had to be or doing things like uh, even lying in their reports. The FBI crime lab reports were altered, you know, to initially he said that the presence of PETN could not be confirmed uh, on McVeigh's pocket knife. And Whitehurst testifies that, you know, the David Williams had his guy, Steve Burmeister, alter his lab report to go from saying uh, it could not be confirmed to saying uh, that it, it could be confirmed. And, you know, that's just how the FBI does things. They'll fabricate evidence, no problem. But one other thing I wanted to mention that relates to, the, to what we're talking about here is uh, recall, though, that there were at least two bomb scares you know that morning and we have news footage of it i have the transcript of cnn's broadcast from april 19th that's on the archive people can go read it and they can see quite clear as day there that uh, all of the rescue operations had to be uh, halted and everyone was uh, pulled out of the area because they had found explosives. And of course, you could, you could be talking about, you know, training devices or, or things that were found in the ATF evidence locker. Certainly that's possible, but it was enough that it happened at least twice that morning. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is also worth looking at. You know, it's never a bad thing to analyze something and right. to look at it, you know. So now, so JD's interpretation of that was that, you know, it was unfortunate that this had led to this whole kind of red herring rabbit trail about bombs in the building, when what it really was, was the ATF had a bunch of contraband in their um, office that they should not have had, including right. explosives, ammunition, and even a tow missile that they were using. They must have got from their CIA buddies uh, for some, you know, entrapping somebody or another. And 
so that they called off the rescue efforts just to get rid of this stuff. And that's and, entirely possible. And that, that then, would fit their MO perfectly. Right. And then that would lead that, you know, evidently did lead to the deaths of people who were being rescued. I know that there was at least one report of a guy who was in the middle of saving a lady and was called back. And when he got back to her, she was dead. Oh God. I mean, we know, I know, I don't remember my footnote anymore, but I know that there was at least one of those. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't want to sit here and play all the sound bites, but we have in the archive, we have all my audio clips too, right? I, um, I don't have a folder for MP3s. You know, I've Scott, I've got your audio clips and I could make a folder there. It would just be easy uh, just to have Harley put a link on the page to, okay, here's the audio clips. Because I've got them all. I've got them organized on my PC. I just don't have a, a mechanism by which to distribute them on the archive. But it's simple enough to create a new cabinet, drop them all in there, and just have Harley put a link to them. Right. Yeah. Um, that'd be worth doing too, because I you've got so. a lot of really good stuff that's just kind of lost. In, yeah, I mean, some time. of it is just junk. You know, I have, I don't know if I ever even sent you these where Ed Bradley is asking McVeigh what he wanted to be when he grew up and all oh, this God. crap. This makes me so angry. Um, let me play this. This is Michael Hinton. And if I remember right, this is eyeball witness to the bomb squad being there that morning. Do I have that mm. right? Is this the guy? You know, I think he was a guy who he was on a bus, and I think he did say he saw feds out there. Right. Yeah, let's try that here. It's just one minute. Yeah. And looking out my window in the afternoons, about between 1.30 and 2 o'clock, I noticed a large gathering of people outside the building. Well, it's about two to 300 people. And when I looked at these folks, I said, well, Mike, what could be going on at the federal building? All right. Did you think that, that this could have been a bomb threat or a fire drill? Initially, um, there was several uh, questions came to my mind what it could have been, but at that time, like I said, uh, I had no idea. Did you notice any extra precautions being taken at the federal building during the week on or before the day of the bombing? An interesting observation I did notice on the morning of the bomb explosion, the TV networks locally were carrying the statement that the federal building had received a bomb threat one week prior to that morning of the bomb explosion. So in my mind, when uh, I heard that, I'm saying, well, what I observed one week earlier out my window, could that? And then the next question came, if so, what security precautions had been taken if they knew this? So that part is important, I think. I'm glad, and that's our hero, JD, there interviewing him. Um, it's important because he's, it's not just that he recalls, yeah, I saw some cops out there early that morning or something, but he had connected it in his mind with what he'd been told previously, that there was some kind of bomb threat or something on that building. Right. So when he saw them, he thought, oh, I wonder if this has something to do with that, which is, you know, an extra tidbit. And I'm not going to sit here and play all my damn clips. I got a bunch of stuff, but. Um, there were a lot of very credible witnesses, though, who did see the bomb squad out there that morning. Debbie Nakanashi worked for the U.S. Postal Service. Um, you know, she saw bomb-sniffing dogs and uh, guys right outside the courthouse that morning. A number of these people were all interviewed by ABC News 2020 in a piece uh, that the great uh, Roger Charles was a co-producer for called The Families Want to Know. We do have the transcript of that on the archive, and people can find the full video on my YouTube page, which is linked to on my uh, Twitter profile. But yeah, it's a that that ABC 2020 piece is great because it, it 
covers these very credible people who were very perplexed to have seen the bomb squad. That's not something you see every day. So they, they had a reason to remember that, especially after the events of that day. Mm-hmm. Man, it yeah. makes me wonder how many other mysterious deaths you have involved, you know, on, on the local fire department and police department level there from people well, sure. who might have talked, but, you know, they're mysterious deaths never got as much coverage as Yankee did for whatever reason or something like that. Cause that's a lot of people to say, geez, if only we had hung around for another 15 minutes, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. cause that's mm-hmm. the story, right? They were there at eight, but left before nine. That's right. They, well, they left before nine They Um, the people who did see them, I know saw them around seven outside the courthouse. And so, Anytime, uh, I'd say between seven and eight, this is when people were seeing the bomb squad out there. And then they up and leave almost as if maybe they were out there because they were expecting something to happen during the night. And then morning comes and no one has showed up. They do a once over with the bomb sniffing dogs, call it good. Now notice these bomb sniffing dogs that were not at the Murrah. They were on the courthouse across the street. So if there were any kind of explosives, these dogs mm-hmm. were, you know, far, a little kind of farther away from where those said explosives might have been. Yeah, they seemed uh, to have it in their head that it was going to be the courthouse as was going to be the target rather than the Murrah building, right? That's right, yeah. Which is strange because the ATF was stationed at the Murrah building, even though well, none it? of them were there that day for some reason. They weren't there. Supposedly, they were out on an all-night surveillance operation. And one thing that is very interesting, though, that kind of uh, clues into this, is if you look at the Aryan Republican Army, their so-called recruitment video, in that video, they make mention of a courthouse massacre is what they they kind of threaten. Hmm. And take into account that and take into account, too, the fact that this judge, um, a judge from – uh, he he lived. Uh, he was from Oregon, and he actually took April nineteenth off work that day due to threats. You know, and it was published in his hometown newspaper that uh, there was an interview with him saying, "Yeah, that there there was some kind of threat for that day, and so he did not go to work that day, and he worked in the courthouse right there." Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Hang on, just one second. Hey, y'all. The audiobook of my book, Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism, is finally done. Yes, of course, read by me. It's available at Audible, Amazon, Apple Books, and soon on Google Play and whatever other options there are out there. It's my history of America's war on terrorism from 1979 through today. Give it a listen and see if you agree. It's time to just come home. Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism, the audiobook. Hey guys, I've had a lot of great webmasters over the years, but the team at expanddesigns.com have by far been the most competent and reliable. Harley Abbott and his team have made great sites for the show and the Institute, and they keep them running well, suggesting and making improvements all along. Make a deal with expanddesigns.com for your new business or news site. They will take care of you. Use the promo code SCOTT and save $500. That's expanddesigns.com. Man, I wish I was in school so I could drop out and sign up for Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom instead. Tom has done such a great job on putting together a classical curriculum for everyone from junior high schoolers on up through the postgraduate level. And it's all very reasonably priced. 
Just make sure you click through from the link in the right margin at scotthorton.org. Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom. Real history, real economics, real education. Man, that's funny. I'm looking at my, my file of audio here, and I got, there's great stuff from this BBC documentary, but I have a file called 10 Hours of OKC Interviews.mp3. <laughs> and I don't remember merging them all together, but maybe somebody did, or maybe I did. And this hmm. is 10 hours of interviews that I did. Yeah, I don't I really think don't I have that one. I've got a bunch of MP3 clips, but I recall them being, you know, shorter pieces here and there. I'd be interested in just taking a look at that. Yeah, I'll upload it. I'll make sure that it's on the server. 10 hours of OKC interviews.mp3, everybody. Uh, well, it'll be on my Twitter, I guess. I'll link to it there. Um, and now, so listen, um, uh, an academic, but a sharp one, one that I respect, asked me the other day, all right, what's the single best piece of evidence to make me believe that there was something going on with Oklahoma City, the FBI was responsible to whatever degree or whatever it is? And I wasn't sure because there's so many very incriminating things, but there are a few extremely smoking guns here. I know one of the things was I said, well, the ATF had infiltrated the FBI's ring. And there was an informant there, and we know all about that. And frankly, the most suspicious of the undercover operatives here, not even an informant, but just a fake Nazi all around, this guy, Andre Strassmeyer, uh, virtually admitted it. I don't want to say all but admitted it, because I think he more he admitted it did. than that, even. Yeah. I think he admitted it to Ambrose Evans Pritchard of the Daily Telegraph. That's right. He practically admitted it. I mean, and, and if you read that interview, it becomes very clear that he's speaking from a position to where it, it says that he knows what he's talking about. He's speaking from experience. And he basically is kind of saying um, there was an informant inside the operation and, you know, the informant bungled it. And it, it, you really get the impression that he's talking about himself in that. And I would direct people to, to that, um, and to looking at Andy Strassmeyer. Um, I know that, um, uh, there's going to be a new piece coming out on him, uh, by the, uh, gentleman who wrote the recent article on Roger Moore. His next piece will be on Andy Strassmeyer. All right. And great. Yeah. Yeah. He definitely though is one of the key areas you want to look at in terms of fed involvement. And you also want to just look at the nature that the fact that the ATF wasn't at work that day, you know, the, and that's on record. Uh, we have the witnesses to that. And also the fact that they had the bomb squad out there. This tells us they knew something. At least they had the date right. And they they were close in terms of the location. And with Andy Strassmeyer, they had someone who was directly around the suspects, you know. Yep. Yeah. Um, uh, you know what? I don't think it'll bore them. It's a minute and a half, a little more, but this is about the ATF being warned on their pages not to come to work. Agents forewarned about a bomb in Oklahoma City. Did they know the Murrah building was a target? The ATF says no, absolutely not. But tonight in a story you'll see only on the news channel, you're about to hear otherwise from people who were at the Murrah building that morning. We asked some simple questions and we can't get any answers, so it makes us that much more curious, you know. Where, where, where the hell were they? The news channel did ask for a private meeting with ATF officials to discuss the credibility of these witness reports. But the ATF refused, saying they had no more to say on the subject. What he told him is that he thought that they had received a tip that morning of the bomb. 
Yet another witness, a rescue worker, says after she talked with an agent at the bombing scene, she also suspected the ATF was warned an agent stayed away from their office that morning. I asked him if his office was in the building, and he said yes, and I asked if there were any ATF agents that were still in the building, and he said no, we weren't here. Witness number one approached an ATF agent nearby. He claims he asked the agent what had happened, and witness number one says this is what the agent told him. He uh, started getting a little bit nervous. He tried reaching somebody on the two-way radio. Uh, couldn't get anybody, and I told him I wanted an answer right then. He said they were in the briefing. None of the agents had been in there. They had been tipped by their pagers not to come into work that day. Plain as day out of his mouth. They were tipped. Why wasn't anybody else? There was a lot of people, good people, died down there. And if they knew, they should let everybody else know. Yep, yep. Seems to be the way it goes. Yeah, um, you know, the, the daycare didn't get a warning, you know. Yeah, hey, these, let me ask, these people did. Let me ask you this, man. I used to have a tape, and it was um, it was a tape that a guy, I think, in Dallas had made that was a collection of all these news clips from that day. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you've heard all the clips I have of the doctor interview saying, yeah, our rescue efforts have been delayed. The clip I just played of the guy saying it seemed like an earthquake at first and all that. That came from this videotape. Okay. But I don't have that anymore. I wonder, if, does that exist on YouTube anywhere? Do you know uh, is that still a thing somewhere online? Is this uh, collection? You know, it, I have not seen anything like that. That certainly would be something very interesting because the, the early reports are often very a very good source to, to find details before an official narrative sets in. You know what? I, I know where you might be able to get it would be, I, I mean, I don't even know if this exists anymore, but if you could contact the Austin Access Channel, they used to have it and play that from time to time. And if they have it, you know, if they have an archive that goes back to the 90s somehow, mm-hmm. you know, they were very librarian-y about all of their stuff back then, so I don't know, they might have it. Mm-hmm. But that's where I got all these clips from, Channel 4 and Channel 5 and Channel 8 and Channel 9 there in um, in Oklahoma City from that now, day. I had, uh, I had coverage of a few, um, probably about four hours worth of material that was on different networks to include CNN on the days after the bombing. And I did review all of that and pulled from that a couple of great clips where yeah. the uh, announcer says that the FBI now has surveillance video of the bombing, mm-hmm. you know, or it's just reported straight up. The FBI has the surveillance video of the bombing, you know? Yeah. Well, so no, this one is the one I'm talking about is all from that day. They, that uh, day. Yeah. So listen, this is a call out to people out there. Maybe someone has this video or they know what I'm talking about. They know who has it. The video that has all these different news clips. And I mean, man, there's some really good ones here. I mean, these are, you know, uh, here's, here, I think, is where they first say it was a car bomb. Devin, we're getting more word on that car bomb now. Let us read this straight from the wire. You talked about it a minute ago. The head of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms now says it appears it was a car bomb with as much as 1,200 pounds of explosives packed inside. 1,200 pounds of explosives packed inside that car bomb in front of the federal building. We heard earlier off the wire that from the governor that some of the fatalities were outside and across the street from the building. Now it all makes sense. Uh, and here's the governor, Frank Keating, calling Channel 5. 
the reports I have is that one device was uh, was uh, deactivated. Apparently, there's another device, and obviously, whatever did the damage to the Murrah building was a tremendous, uh, very sophisticated explosive device. So. Anyway, so I just I'm playing those just so it sounds familiar to people. If anybody goes, oh, I recognize that. I do have that videotape back, you know, in my attic or in my closet somewhere. I have heard those clips before. We need that, and that's a, it's really important, man. There's so much good stuff on there. And when I got these clips off of that tape, was literally in 1998, 1999, something like that. I haven't had the video since then. You know what? Okay, I'm only 99% sure of that. I guess I could I could check my tapes again, but I'm I'm almost positive that I lost my copy of that back a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, if anybody out there has anything, you know, audio, video, anything that you feel is worthy of preserving, yeah, reach out to us and we'll you know we'll put it on the archive. Yeah, for sure. All right, listen. So you have this really great uh, essay at the Libertarian Institute: the FBI's failure to comply with FOIA. Reform necessary after lawsuits detail pattern of deception. This is really good stuff here. And you start off, you know, you're talking about stingrays and Flight 800 and all this stuff. So this is, first of all, really focused on FOIA before you change the subject to Jesse trying to do. So tell us a little bit about uh, your research here. Yeah, so basically I wanted to write an article that explained kind of the FBI's posture and pattern of behavior when it comes to the Freedom of Information Act. And so what I did was I did look at, for you mentioned the Stingray devices, and the reason for that is through any of the various lawsuits or legal cases involving a Stingray, you can really get a good um, a good measure of the FBI's uh, how they respond to things. And ultimately what you find is that in these stingray cases, the FBI will, uh, they'll actually drop charges against, uh, well, they'll see that they'll ask the prosecutor to drop charges mm-hmm. against a person rather than having to answer questions, answer a judge's questions about the stingray or provide any information about it to a defense counsel. Um, they've gone so far as to instruct local law enforcement to lie on applications for warrants. If you're going to um, get a warrant for, for someone and, and you're using information that you you glean from the Stingray, they're telling law enforcement to lie and say it came from a confidential informant, which that's probably a felony, you know, lying to a federal judge. But you just see this overall pattern of deception uh, from the FBI on that. And as far as like TWA 800, what I did there is I wanted to illustrate how um, in, in FOIA cases for in other in other subjects, not just Oklahoma City, we see kind of the same thing. Like they've got a, on their website a whole batch of FOIA documents for many different subjects, and one of them happened to be TWA 800. And I happen to be familiar with it. They've got like 700 pages of documents, and when I went through it, what I noticed is they did not include any of the witness 302s. And when I say that, I'm talking about the witnesses who saw the the plane explode. They saw it and they were interviewed on the news. We knew there were many dozens of them, yet there were none of them in in their uh, FOIA release. And so this pilot, a veteran pilot, uh, commercial airline pilot um, named Ray Lahr actually had to file another Freedom of Information Act request. He had a lawsuit going in order just to obtain those witness accounts. So it just, just shows this overall pattern of deception where the FBI will lie. They will lie to judges. 
this. They will even instruct people to do things that are unethical and wrong, all in the name of hiding things. And that's just their default position. Yeah. And just, you know, like if you grew up on Matlock and stuff like that, believe that there's anything like a rule of law in America, something like that, it should sound shocking and crazy that the cops would bring a case and then the defense would say, yeah, but, you know, they broke the law to get this evidence. We want to find out more about how they got this evidence. And then the cops would say, you know what? We're dropping the charges. Yeah. <laughs> and then just skate with that. And instead of even pretending to come clean to the judge about what's really going on here, you know what, Your Honor? They're right. We're criminals. So, but fair compromise. We'll go ahead and let him continue to be a criminal as long as we can continue to be criminals. Is that fair? Right. That's as, that's how far they'll go. Absolutely. <laughs> you gotta love and there it. will no shame at all. Yeah, dude. Um, all right. Now, uh, boy, I'll tell you what, once we're done solving Oklahoma City, I'm putting you on the uh, flight 800 case, son. <laughs> you got some work to do for us here. Um, all right, now, so tell us about uh, the great Jesse Trinidou and, well, his importance to even the FOIA movement, you could say, right? He's a very important FOIA guy, this Trinidou. Absolutely. He's been engaged in multi-decade lawsuit against the FBI for their failure to comply with FOIA. And what happened here ultimately is he, he submitted a FOIA request in 2008 for the surveillance videos of the Oklahoma City bombing, of which he, he knew the FBI had those because uh, Roger Charles had given him many documents. When Roger was on the defense team, he had access to these documents. And so he's got all these documents that say the FBI has these surveillance videos. Some of them describe what is on the videos. Uh, it, it shows exactly where they came from. So the bottom line is Jesse knows these videotapes exist. And what he's interested in is he wants to, you know, have proof here that Tim McVeigh had an accomplice with him because he believes his brother was murdered in an interrogation because his brother was uh, considered to be possibly a John Doe too. And so he's wanting to prove the existence of John Doe too by getting these surveillance tapes. And so he uh, filed his FOIA request for the tapes and ultimately the FBI uh, also for any documents relating to those tapes. And what he got from the FBI uh, was absolutely incomplete. He didn't get First of all, many of the documents he already possessed that he got from Roger and he knew they had, they did not turn over to him. So he knows that they're hiding something uh, by by th that fact. Also, the tapes that he did get, um, they none of them show anything before 9.02 a.m. And none of them show anything at all of interest. And to him, and to, I think any other reasonable person looking at it, they can tell that these have been sanitized. They've been edited. He's been given a little bit of, okay, this was after the bombing. But uh, we know, for example, that the FBI had video that had time code on it. And you could tell the, the passage of time in relation to what it appears on the video because the Secret Service document st says that what they saw on the videotape is the bomb detonating so many minutes or seconds after 
the suspects exit the truck. And so these are very specific documents and none of the videos he got depict what you see there. And so he did file a lawsuit uh, to get from the FBI the materials they were withholding. And what he was able to do is present to the judge, uh, introduce as exhibits at trial, the various documents that he got from Roger. And to show, okay, here's a document that shows there's a surveillance video from the Regency Towers. I did not get this one. Here's one that shows surveillance video from the public library. I didn't get that one. And ultimately what the FBI did in this case is they failed to search their three primary record-keeping databases, which he was able to prove that through eliciting testimony from FBI agents in court and showing their failure to search. And he was able to prove that they did not turn over many, many relevant documents relating to the subject. And I think made a, made a strong case um, uh, for the fact that the, the videotapes that he did receive were edited uh, because they just don't show what appears in the documents. And he's, it's still the battle is still ongoing. We're waiting now on a ruling from the judge, uh, but we believe that's coming soon. And we also believe that the judge will probably rule uh, in a manner similar to what Jesse put in his proposed findings of fact document, which is, that document my article was largely based on. Mm -hmm. Um, and we believe the judge will, you know, re probably reach the same conclusions that Jesse did in his proposed findings document. Yeah, good times. Okay, well, listen, everybody, uh, this piece is at the Libertarian Institute. The FBI's failure to comply with FOIA reform necessary after lawsuits detail pattern of deception. And there's just all kinds of great stuff in here, of course. And then. Check it out. Behold. Show it to your Democrat friends. CNN.com. Why did this cop turn up dead? By Thomas Lake, March 3rd, 2023. I'm standing here beside myself. Can hardly believe that this happened at all, but this is just something. So, uh, history made. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, really appreciate your time and your analysis as always, Richard. Thank you very much, Scott. I appreciate it. It was great to be on. All right, you guys, that is Richard Booth. Find out everything he knows at libertarianinstitute.org slash OKC. The Scott Horton Show, Anti-War Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. APSradio.com, antiwar.com, scotthorton.org, and libertarianinstitute.org.